it's one of the greatest gifts that we can do with taking us to Sunday as a church on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, that there's a rhythm in our lives. And way back in the 60s, when I was a kid, Sunday school had this teaching message called Slammer Grass, where you would take, you'd cut out the Bible figures and you'd place them onto the like appropriate background scene, and you would tell the story through them. And now, nothing's been updated, but the goal is still the same. And it sounds really loud in the guys, but I'm just going to keep going. I'm going to blow you guys out. <laughs> so, um, anyway, the goal is the same, and that is to tell these stories from the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament. And these stories have the power of what people say in the uh, business world. They have stickiness, which means that the, um, the, the characters are so intriguing, their circumstances are so harrowing, that it ignites the imagination. And you find that you remember these stories 30 or 40 or 50 years later. Well, in this series, we are telling some of these stories where the people of God are in danger. They were about to be overwhelmed, and then God came through for them. This year, unlike any in a long time, has really tested where our ultimate hope is of the COVID, global destruction, civil unrest, racial tension, a divided country approaching the election. Barnard reports recently on the church details the impact on the church, including an increase in acute mental health issues, anxiety, and loneliness. So it's impacting us. It is certainly impacting you and it's impacting me and our family. And anxiety is contagious. Anxiety is contagious. And we need more than ever in a way that non-interest leaders, parents, and friends who radiate calm, poise, and steadiness in the midst of crisis. Today, we'll meet a figure from the Old Testament just like that. Turn your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6 of your device, and I realize we're jumping here into the middle of a book. So let me give a little bit of a context. 2 Kings chapter 6, one of the some of the historical books of the Bible. The timing is around 750 years before Christ. And to the nation of Israel, ever since the glory days of David and Solomon, the country has been in a deep, progressive, spiritual decline. And in that decline, though, God still continues to reveal Himself and to speak to Israel through prophets. And the two main prophets are Elijah and Elisha. This story involves Elisha. The story does not revolve only around Israel. Here in chapter 5 and 6, the focus is the nation of Iran, or what we know today as Syria. And the Syrians were desert people. They were neighbors of Israel to the north and to the east. There are many cities which exist. Today, I think today, in the modern world, with the Mountains. They flourished alongside of Israel for centuries, sometimes enemies, sometimes friends, sometimes allies. 
Now, when approaching an Old Testament story, it's very helpful questions to ask you. What do you learn about God? Nature of God. What do you learn about the nature of humanity, you and me? This story breaks into three distinct themes, each revealing something different about God. And here's your outline for this morning. The first theme in chapter 6, verses 8 through 12, is God the Powerful. The next theme is God the Protector, verses 13 through 17. And the final theme is God the Lover of Enemies, verses 18 through 23. So again, that's all again in your in the sermon notes on your Bible. So let's go ahead and begin with verse 8. Second Kings 6, verse 8. First thing. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. And after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. Beware of counting that place because the Aramans are going down there. So the king of Israel stepped on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of you, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet of Israel, he tells the king of Israel the very word you speak in your family. Now, the first thing that sticks out about this passage is this is an unprovoked war. Iran into Israel, which is really surprising because the story in chapter 5 is all about God's miraculous healing of Naaman, a Syrian, who was the commander of their army, sort of like the chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff, so to speak, and a very close advisor to the king of Iran. God has healed him. God has shown grace to him. So it's surprising that the king of Israel, the king of Syria, the time would have passed Israel, unprovoked up to such grace given. Something else surprising is the grace given to the king of Israel, who at this time is Jerome. And Jerome, like his father, stayed on this downward pathway. He is not a spiritual leader, he is religious. But he is indifferent, he is insensitive to the heart of God and continues to lead the nation down this wrong path. Despite all that, God continues to show his power to the king of Israel. Every move of the enemy, their every encampment, is revealed to Elisha with such precision that the king of Aram is convinced there is a traitor in his camp. The five look. And when none is found, the real source of the espionage, the real spy, is identified the prophet Elisha. Now, this king of Aram, who was a pagan, who his mental view of the world included superstition, he must have wondered what kind of magic is this? He's haunted by paganism, he's haunted by superstition. He can't figure out the magic of the God of Israel. Name is healed. And now this God knows and reveals my most intimate secrets. So the revelation of God's power not only takes up the highest authority in Israel, but it's also given the attention of the king of Syria. Now, speak this up to the devil. God the all powerful. 
need to compare this to today. Think of the high-level killing of American enemies, such as Osama bin Laden. Think of the amount of coordination, weaponry, and manpower used to bring down one man. And that analogy breaks down somewhat because Bin Laden was vastly more protected than Elisha, vastly more hidden. Elisha was an old man. And for his, you know, his military array, he had one young, inexperienced, afraid servant. And that servant woke up that morning to a nightmare. Must have been a nightmare. Felt like a nightmare. I might imagine him going back inside and resolving to have his coffee first. I must have seen it was real. They were hemmed in, surrounded by an overwhelming amount of warriors, and cut off from all resources. You know, to grasp how they must have felt, imagine the soldiers on Benton, or in North Dakota, northern France, as they were trapped in a similar way. On one side, the British Channel, on the other, Hitler's quickly approaching army. No escape. Disturbance. Must have felt something like this in full panic mode. But Elisha sees a different reality. He prays for his unfolded that his eyes would be open. He does not seek to persuade him through logic. The servant does not need, in this moment, a lecture or more information about the sovereignty of God. He needs a revelation. So Elisha simply prays that he would see a reality typically closed off to human beings. And when he opens his eyes, the servant sees a different spiritual reality. He sees an angelic force with far more numbers than the Syrian army. Chariots ablaze with fire symbolize the presence of God. Elisha did the math for him and simply said, those who are with us are more than those who are One commentator weighed in on this passage, talking about the nature of faith. And you might ask yourself at times, what really is faith? He writes this, that faith is never the imagining of unreal things. It is the grip of things which cannot be demonstrated in the senses. Faith is the grip of things which cannot be demonstrated to the senses, but which are real. The chariots, the horses, and fire were absolutely real. Anthony Orville died at age 44. Many thought that he was the greatest Christian pianist that had ever lived. In 2006, he was on a Christian theme cruise in the Caribbean. In the fourth night out, he had just played a piano solo. About five minutes later, during the concert, he collapsed with a massive heart attack and died instantly at his funeral. Now, uh, a woman, a uh, well-known Christian uh, uh, teacher, was on that case by the name of Becky Pippett. She's highly regarded in the Christian community. She's been noted for her books and for her training on evangelism. He was approached by a woman that night later with a following story. Now, Becky is not one to really be given to um, visions and so forth. But she said to this woman who approached her, she was very humble and very unseen. And this woman told Pepper that in the concert last night, 
Walter Anthony Berger played a solo, the spotlight went to the other side of the stage, but for some reason, I kept my eyes on him. And I felt like God was impressing on me these words. I'm going to show you something from my realm that will be an encouragement to you. I was troubled. And suddenly he said, I saw sitting behind Anthony Berger an angel. He said he appeared to be seven feet tall, dressed in white and gold, and he just stood there for about 30 seconds. He put his hand on Anthony's shoulder, and Anthony looked up, and then slumped down and died. When just minutes before he had played the song, we shall behold him. Now, a few days ago, we had some, just like a couple days ago, we had some folks from our lawn company come to our home, and they were doing variation of our yard. And I was home at midday, which is rare. And then they stuck a top in the one of those tires, uh, hit something and blew out the, the, uh, the wall of the tire, and they were stuck. They couldn't finish their work and had to wait for the company uh, to to uh, fix it. And so they were just stuck in the front yard. And when things converge like that, I tried to stay open because I wanted to start trying to do something here. And so I ventured out and began talking with the three workers there. And one thing led to another, and pretty quickly, with one worker for quickly, we found ourselves talking about the need for hope. And the need for hope for life after death, and how, how, how can people live with that, the hope of life after death. This worker, a young man, 30 something, related to me a story very similar to Anthony. Uh, the story related to the story by this woman, related about Anthony Broker's story of uh, his mother being an angel when his uncle died. And I bet if we went around this parking lot, I'm going to guess that many of you could share similar stories. Now, you may question the vision of, you may question this woman's vision of an angel. And you may question the vision of this young man. That's okay. You know, it's not out of the Bible. These stories are not a test of our faith, they're not the foundation of our faith. But I'll tell you what I think personally, I think it's entirely possible. And the person who retold this story from where I got it, this pastor went on to say, well, I think God sometimes gives us an additional glimpse of His glory to bring us hope. These revelations indeed are rare, but again, they are not the foundation of our faith. Again, I think based on life's story, I think these things are entirely possible. There's a realm around us that is there to us, that is more real than the chair you are sitting in. So what we learn about God from this story, we learn that God is our protector. He surrounds us like He surrounds the mountains of Jerusalem. And Lord, they don't promise to prevent suffering or hardship in this life. He just promised to watch over us and to guard us such that we will never suffer randomly or needlessly. Many Christians, many of you have looked to Psalm 91 for comfort during this pandemic, and that is entirely appropriate. It is filled with promises for our protection, including in verse 11, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. By verse 14, because he loves you, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, 
because he acknowledges my name. Nothing happens to a believer in Jesus outside the sovereignty and permission of God. If we do suffer, if prayers go unanswered, it is not without reason. It is for the comfort of others. It is to reveal Jesus to non-Christians, or it is to prepare us for the age to come. And it might be all the above. Let's go to the third theme. God the protector, God the powerful. Now, the third theme, a final twist in our story that will leave our mouths wide open with wonder. Look at verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him now, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. He's feeling pretty good about this, this, this power. So God struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, This is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you were looking for. That's probably because it was him. I'm sure he knew that. And then he led them to Samaria. And the end of the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see me. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked, and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, Shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those who have captured with your own sword or bow? Put food and water before them so they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from around stopped raiding Israel's territory. This is God's word. The eyes of the young prophet, a believer, had been closed and the life of prayed they'd be opened. Now he prays that the eyes of the Syrian army, non-believers, will be closed. And they are blinded, or, as is more likely, mentally dazed or confused. Otherwise, how would he like to leave them on this 12-mile trek southward to Samaria? Samaria. Samaria was the main city. Samaria was the capital city of Israel. It was well fortified. It was home to the king. And once they're all inside the city, he likes to pray for the fog to be lifted, and it is. And the Syrian soldiers find themselves in a predicament they could never have imagined inside the high city walls of their enemies. Entirely surrounded, entirely vulnerable, just as Elijah and his children had been earlier in the day. And the king is beside himself with glee. Corey Docker points out that, that the, the phrasing here in Hebrew indicates that he was giddy like a kid in a game shop. He can wipe out this constant storm in his side and still be home for dinner. But Elijah is connected to the heart of God. Unlike the king, the God of Israel is not nationalistic like the gods of the Near East. Yahweh desires to show his love and compassion to all people, to show even undeserved love to his enemies. The Syrian army came to wipe out his Elijah, and no doubt would have decimated the small town, covering him. It was for judgment that God said, Come. And he gives them a bountiful peace plan. Can you imagine yourself the relief with this reservation of those fierce warriors? Like, is this a trick? This has got to be a trick. And then the utter surprise when they realized they would not die, but actually share a feast, not just food and water, 
Who is this group of Israel? They must have wondered as they're on their journey back, still picking the food out of their mouth, a draining flask of water that will refill before they left. This God has name our commander, our chief of staff. He has the power to reveal secrets. Now, he has even shows mercy. You know, during a crisis when the pressure is on, when we are tempted to panic, that's when we become more tribal. That's when we become more inward. That's when we become more selfish. That's when we circle the wagon. That's when we protect our own. But look at God here. God, in this moment, He shows His true missional heart, His desire for all. And Elijah shows us the power of a non a non anxious presence. And the fruit of a calm, poised, God shaped heart is a necessary. God's powerful, God's a protector, God's a lover of enemies. This story teaches us a lot about God. But what does it teach about humanity in general? Specifically, you and me. Did you know that the Bible teaches that the natural human heart, the natural human heart, who you are without grace intervening, that the heart untouched by God does not seek God, is not a friend of God, but is an actuality, an enemy of God. An enemy of God. The natural heart. Do not wake up this morning and see a world filled with God's love and presence, but rather sees an empty universe, and that one must do their best through their own strength and resources to get through the day and pursue a virtuous life. This is the heart, that natural heart, that's the heart of that pagan, serious king, and the religious Israelite king. It is the heart of the pagan. Soldiers and the religious servants of Elisha. And without grace, it is our heart. Whether you have a religious background or a secular background. Martin Luther wrote that every sin, every sin, every sin springs from unbelief, not believing in the goodness of God. You see, the essence of unbelief, Luther wrote, is that we believe God is our adversary, and therefore we must protect ourselves against Him. Even the attempt to justify our work, even the attempt to justify our existence through virtue or doing good acts, is actually a defense against the goodness of God, a defense against the grace Elisha, he got this. Elisha understood this, and therefore he prayed for the heart of his servant, for his heart. Through faith, through faith comes a revelation of who God is. Elisha knew his servant must see the glory of God. He must have a revelation of this amazing goodness and grace he had never figured out on his own. You see, this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is something only the Holy Spirit can do in our hearts. J.D. Greer points out that to see, he believes, to see, like he likes to saw, 
is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It is to become a spiritual person. What we need is a revelation from God, an experience to believe in and to affirm the goodness of God so that we are no longer rebels, no longer defending ourselves from Him, but we become convinced that the presence of God and the essential goodness of God fills the universe. And it's good in store for me if I abandon my running and come to Him. Believe me, we can run from Him before we were a Christian, and we can keep running after we become Christians. Because we have trouble become God's adversaries because we don't believe in His goodness. You see, Paul understood. Going to the New Testament, Paul understood this dynamic that the natural heart needs to become spiritually resurrected. Ephesians 1, verses 17 through 20, Paul prayed this for the Ephesian believers. His heart is restored. He says, If I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of revelation so you may know Him better, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Thank you. Same thing you like to pray for a person. That your eyes might be open in order that you may know. You might have experiential knowledge. The hope to which you have the riches of his glorious, the glorious inheritance in the holy people, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. How great is that power? That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realm. It's resurrection power available to you and to me. To experience these truths requires not merely an intellectual transaction, but a spiritual one. That is why prayer and the faith underlying prayer is so critical. This is what the Holy Spirit, friends, is seeking to do in your life. This is what Jesus is interceding for you to do. This is what I pray for you. And your pastors pray for you. That the revelation of God would dislodge the unbelief in your heart. That the revelation of God would open your eyes to who you are in Christ and all you have in Christ to live a life of new creation. From the good heart of the Father, He longs to show you the quality of the hope you possess, the incredible inheritance awaiting you, and the power available today to face the challenges and the pressures of COVID, depression, loneliness, despair, fear, and anxiety. And to begin to picture yourself not only experiencing victory, and the power of God in your life, but even to become a non-anxious presence for others. Parents, teachers, leaders, a friend, what the world needs more than ever is people who will display a non-anxious presence because the power and goodness of God is working in and through them. Can you be that kind of person with God's faith? 
ever play before in your life, for you to begin to become a non-Christian, calm, steady, and forward forever, and you find the way. And you may ask you, how can you be so forward? How can you be so calm? Friends, don't miss it. Please, don't miss it. Don't miss the moment. What's the moment? Jesus. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've seen. Tell them what you've seen. By the way, Paul prays another a prayer where he, just, he loses his words because he knows that Paul was smart on the world that time. He simply runs out of words to describe the love of God. Again, in a prayer. And in that prayer, he is praying that I'm praying that you'd be able to grasp this. And the grass means to move it to 12 inches from here to here. To grasp it, to begin to experience the love of God. That's what Elijah prayed for. Elijah prayed for his son. Continue 3 16 through 19. Friends, move into a spiritual life. Pray that your eyes might be open. And pray the same for others in your life. Now that last scene from Tim and wherever you are, Tim and Nick, um, you start working your way up here. Again, come to the table today. You know, this last scene that we just went over, maybe you picked it up by now. This last scene is fulfilled where? How is this last scene of God being a lover of enemies, of inviting his enemies to his feet? Where? In the New Testament, when you see this picture fulfilled, you see it fulfilled at the Lord's Supper, at the Lord's table, where he invites his enemies to a feast, to drink of him, to eat of him, the last scene, and the feast for enemies. And his enemies were you and they were me. And we too have been invited. This is an invitation from the Lord to dine with those who were once enemies. We are those Syrian warriors whose eyes were once blind, but now have been opened to see the glory of our good 